The history of television is a history of failure. For every television series that lasted years and years, there were dozens that lasted only one season or less. But did they deserve to die? Or were they... Cancelled too soon? Welcome back to Cancel Too Soon, the podcast where we review television series that lasted only one season or less. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for The Wrap, IGN, and CriticallyClaimed.net. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I appear on the radio. Ooh. <laughs> that's, that's my only credit. You do things. No, I do things as well. I, I just write. once, just give your actual credit. Be I, proud, damn it. I, I contribute to IGN. I uh, contribute to criticallyacclaimed.net. I have contributed to many sources over the course of my career. I do appear on the radio occasionally. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are here mm-hmm. at Cancel Too Soon in the month of September, which we call Suddenly Last Season. Because when you think of television, you think of Tennessee Williams. Indeed, and uh, or or suddenly Susan, wherever your brain is going. Suddenly, last Susan. <laughs> that's that's the spinoff. The, but when they re- inevitably resurrect, suddenly Susan, there it'll you be go. called suddenly last Susan. I like it. In any case, uh, every September here at Cancel Too Soon, we like to put the emphasis on shows that were only recently canceled. Shows that lasted uh, uh, only throughout the previous season of television. That's a little bit more nebulous than it used to be. Seasons of television used to begin around September, October. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we got some stuff that began in the summer or April well, or whatever. And, and but what, like with the streaming services, now you get like an entire season in a day. It's like, well, when does that does that count as a season? Yes, it does. Yeah. But, you know, it does. It's not released gradually over the course of a season. It's, it's just, not seasonal. Yeah. 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 But uh, uh, in any case, you know, there's a lot of shows every single season that get canceled and a lot of them get canceled after one season or in some cases less and we like to make sure that we're sort of keeping tabs on that because otherwise they're just gonna pile up all the, and we'll all never the new ever stuff, catch up. yeah, and we'll we'll forget about it before we even learned about it. So. And so every episode throughout the month of September, we're looking at those shows. Where it's guaranteed we're not going to get to every single one because we only have four weeks. But mm-hmm. we wanted to pick some shows that looked like particularly interesting failures. Yeah, and boy, have we got a good one to start <laughs> with because it looked so dumb at the time. Yeah, it was a weird idea, and it was one I was really attracted to, but not nearly attracted enough to get a TNT. Subscription. Yeah, it, it really pushed all of our buttons, and mm. we were really, really excited to get into Will. You can't just make up words. Someone must. This is William Shakespeare. Ready for the slaughter. Sharpen thy wit, butcher. Whether fine-feathered Ooh. or the most common of birds. To wing our way to heaven, all we need are words. <laughs> uh, Will is short for William Shakespeare. It is a television series about William Shakespeare, and it plays a lot at, at like... the very beginning of his career. Yeah, we probably would have covered the whole gamut of his career. The last mm. season would have been the last... Mm. Bit, but uh, so, yeah, the Henry VIII. Yeah, but that. this isn't like a serious historical 
drama. This is mm. Shakespeare in Love meets Moulin Rouge with a Ken Russell film kind of forcibly like just shoved in there here but, and there. But a not very interesting Ken Russell film. It's no. Like, it's like Ken Russell on autopilot without all of the sex and weirdness that made Ken Russell interesting. Yeah, just Ken Russell going, I know what you want. Yeah. You want hunky guys and mm. uh, uh, some some wicked like, pagan stuff and some drugs. But, and, but we're not going to go as far as like the, the weird free cod pieces that you see in yeah. Ken Russell films so frequently. So, like, this is an attempt to make Shakespeare cool for kids, man. So even though it's a period piece, it's got contemporary or relatively contemporary music. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's got well, sex and violence and wild historical inaccuracies and an attempt but to in, make it seem like it relates to the present day. But in a weird way, a lot of, like, slavish attention to some actual Shakespearean detail... Yeah, because they wanted to... That an audience wouldn't necessarily know. Uh, Like, like one of the conceits of the play is that he puts together the two gentlemen of Verona, like, really early in his career. Now, that wasn't actually published until a little bit later in his career. Mm Mm-hmm. But some scholars believe that he wrote it early in his career just because it's kind of immature and it's not very well structured and it resembles some of his, like, early, early plays. So they incorporate that into the drama. And if you know that, you won't need... London Calling and Lust for Life and all these really obvious punk music cues on the soundtrack, all these really anachronistic costume designs. They try to make it look super duper colorful. People have mohawks and dyed hair. So that what they're trying to do is make the early days of William Shakespeare's career seem like this really subversive punk underground art scene. Now, this is an approach that is very familiar mm. to the creator of the series, Craig Pierce. Craig Pierce has worked with Baz Luhrmann a lot. Mm-hmm. He co-wrote Strictly Ballroom. He co-wrote Romeo plus Juliet. Uh, he co-wrote The Great Gatsby, or wrote mm. uh, in any case. What, what and do you think of Romeo plus Juliet? I think it is a time capsule, but an interesting time capsule. Okay. I appreciate what Romeo Romeo plus Juliet was trying to do. Now, if you weren't around when Romeo plus Juliet came it's like out... 96, 97, around yeah, there. Late, yeah, late 90s. Um, that was an attempt to take... William Shakespeare's plays, of which there have been many recent adaptations, very high profile, very classy, and well, try to. There tr- were a lot of straight ones, thanks to Kenneth Branagh. He did yeah. like three of the best. Uh, he did Henry. Well, I guess before Rome, uh, Romeo plus Juliet, he had only done Henry V and Much Ado About Nothing. But there was um, also Trevor Nunn's Twelfth Night. Um, Kenneth Branagh starred in, but didn't direct that Othello. That I think was it was Oliver Parker time. who did Oliver that. Oliver Parker did the Othello with, yeah. with Florence Fishburne. Um, so yeah, there have been a lot of really classy, very traditional in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. Shakespeare plays that were being adapted to the screen in the 1990s. Baz Luhrmann had an idea, and I think it's an interesting idea, where he realized that in his time, William Shakespeare was not seen as this stuffy, classy thing that only mm. erudite people enjoyed. He was he, the populist. Yeah, he was Michael Bay. He was Steven Spielberg. He was making blockbusters. Charles Dickens was the same way. Mm. We think of Charles Dickens' work as uh, very intelligent, very classical. At the time, that was the blockbuster. That mm. was the very mainstream stuff. Here's the thing. They were the blockbusters, but they were also intelligent and classical. Well, and that's why they lasted yeah. for so long. So... Like, Shakespeare was a populist, but he also wrote some of the most beautiful poetry ever put down in English. So, yes. Yeah. So, like, the if you think to yourself that mainstream art can be artistic, Shakespeare is one of the people who proved that that was true. Mm. So, Baz Luhrmann wanted to take a Shakespeare play, in particular Romeo and Juliet, because it's very youth-oriented, mm-hmm. and he wanted to tell it in a way that what if it was made for the first time 
today? Mm. What would it look like? What would it feel like? Same dialogue, but what would the cinematic trapping be? Mm. And his idea was it would be a brash, violent, sexy, profane Mm. MTV movie with lots of fast cutting and guns and car chases. Mm. And honestly, on that level, I mean, again, that's a style that it looks as retro now as like split screen does with movies from the 60s <laughs> but when you watch it through that lens that's a that's a pretty well-made movie i like that movie it's it's kind of right. silly in some of its constructs like whenever they talk about their swords they're waving guns that have the word sword written on them. yeah like give me my long sword ho and it says long sword on his uh, mm-hmm. there's a handgun that it, it's the word dagger yeah like it's just the word dagger with a handle on it <laughs> if you look closely at some of those guns, it's they're, they're pretty crazy. It's ridiculous, but it's fun. Mm. So uh, he, they took that approach and they sort of merged it with a story about the Moulin Rouge, a French nightclub. Mm. Um, and in Moulin Rouge, which was not based on anything Shakespearean, Baz Luhrmann uh, decided to use contemporary music in order to illustrate that the songwriter or poet at the heart of the story was ahead of his time. Mm. So that we know, well, that's a hit song. Clearly he's good. Mm. Well, um, and also to ensure that a modern audience can get the same sort of emotional cues. Mm-hmm. Like a, a modern audience might not hear, you know, turn of the century Parisian mm-hmm. night hall music and understand what's going on. Yeah, the can-can was salacious when mm. it came out. In order to make that seem salacious now, would they adjust it? And that's mm-hmm. another approach that Will takes to the material. Uh, and the other like co-conspirator in all of us. He didn't create the show, but he directed most of the episodes. And I know about of, most. He directed a lot of them. A lot of them, and he kind of sh- shaped the flavor of the show was Shekhar Kapoor, the uh, Indian filmmaker who did, in America, is best known for directing the two Elizabeth movies. Yeah. Uh, Elizabeth based, and Elizabeth the Golden Age. Um, and those were breakout roles. The first one was a breakout role for Kate Blanchett. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's quite good. It got overlooked because that was the same year that, like, Saving Private Ryan and well, Thin Red it, Line. It was the same year as like, Shakespeare in Love. So yeah, there were, there were was, two films about Elizabeth I, I. I was getting to that. My yeah. point is, is that there was it was a Best Picture nominee, but it was like the least likely to win. Yeah. And it's a he shame. He also did that film, The Four Feathers, which I saw and forgot completely because it's, it's an a o- forgettable film. It's an okay production, but yeah. the, the acting choices weren't great in it. But. Um, yeah, Elizabeth is a movie that is very. Uh, um, that's what I'm looking for. Um, it it, it uh, works. Astute. It's astute. <laughs> it's right. beautifully acted, but it also manages to be very. Uh, it, it can really connect to a contemporary audience, and it doesn't get too, um, you know, wrapped up in historical detail. Mm. It just feels like a really great story about a fascinating person, yeah. and it's very. What, what is the word I'm looking for? Acceptable to, to modern audiences. <laughs> okay, uh, accessible. Uh, maybe. Accessible. All that's right. what I'm like. It's accessible to modern audiences without going for all of this weird stylistic whimsy. Uh, well, uh, the pandering is the word you're looking for. Uh, th- this, this is a show. That's really trying to uh, cater to the CW audience, yeah. and I, I don't know. This this frustrates me because I've always been a Shakespeare nerd. I got sure. my first complete works of Shakespeare when I was twelve, and I just tore through it. I didn't understand it, mm. but I loved the language and I loved going through it. I, I read through the Tempest, and my only takeaway was, "Wow, Prosper is not very nice." Well, uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> and, and is Caliban a human? I'm not exactly sure. I couldn't really. Figure no, no. Out he a lot was, of Caliban stuff. was the invisible monster that uh, Prospero was able to uh, well, was, unleash while uh, when well, he I, accessed I, that alien technology. What? Yeah, you know, and then oh, and then for, Leslie yeah, Nielsen yeah, fought yeah, off Caliban, and and, and 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 Francis was Ariel, and yeah, yeah, I got it. yeah, yeah. 
Forbidden Planet is uh, is the Tempest. Is an adaptation of the Tempest. We didn't um, know that. So these these so sort of modern updates of Shakespeare are nothing new is my point. My my frustration comes though when people the people who are like trying to bring Shakespeare to a new generation always feel this immediate instinct to like dumb it down or modernize it or cha- like alter it in this really dramatic way not understanding that maybe just giving people like young people the language or a straight adaptation mm-hmm. Could grab them. Well, but at the same time, at the same time, Shakespeare, you know, he didn't write a movie. He didn't mm-hmm. write a book. He wrote a play. A play mm-hmm. is meant to be performed and yeah. interpreted and in some cases even edited to mm-hmm. fit an audience. So, you know, every production of Shakespeare, even on the stage, is going to be a little different than the one that preceded it, mm-hmm. either because of the acting choices or Orson Welles grew to quite notable acclaim mm. for his daring productions of uh, um, he did a production of Julius Caesar which mm. was all about the rise of Italian fascism you know mm-hmm. that was a modern update it still kept the spirit in everything but it was yeah. new and bold and daring so in and of itself the idea of updating history changing history stylistically yeah, I, I guess when, doesn't bother me but when it seems like they're only doing it to make it seem cool yeah that's well, when and, it and feels false my, my, my complaint also yeah it, it only comes with like film and TV adaptations. Mm. Uh, when you do that with theater, you know, theater is alive. It's really immediate. And it's okay to have that immediate, you know, the, the poetry and the screaming and the emotion just spilling off a stage. It's okay to alter a lot of that in a theatrical setting because you're a little bit more wrapped up in sort of the headiness of the theatrical experience. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're doing it to film, I feel like you need to be a lot more careful about your staging. And... All the film at it, well, not all of them, but you know, the ones I'm complaining about tend to play a little too fast and loose with their staging. You know, you bring up the live performance, and that's actually one of the things I liked most about this show was seeing the live and raucous performances. And that's what I wanted more of. of. There was too little of it in this series. What I was going to bring up was, you know, in a live performance, Mm -hmm. you can modulate to meet the needs of your audience. When I was Mm -hmm. in high school, I went to high school in Pasadena where I grew up. and I I, uh, uh, I was part of a drama class, and mm-hmm. one time we went to, I was very excited, we went to a production of The Glass Menagerie at the Pasadena Playhouse. Okay. The Pasadena Playhouse is a very respectable institution. A lot of great actors came through there. Yeah. Offhand, the only name that comes to mind is James Kahn when he was young, but there <laughs> okay. were a lot. Yeah. Um, and so this was a good production of Glass Menagerie mm-hmm. featuring people you've seen. Um, and... We're watching it. We're, me and my class were actually pretty like dedicated to theater. We were very serious about it, even though we mm. weren't like going to a theater school. Um, but a lot of the other theater classes were not getting it, and they were, they were snickering a lot. They were snickering, yeah. and after a while, like, especially after like the second half of the play, mm. you can tell that the actors are like, "Fuck it, they're philistines. Uh-huh. Well, let's just play to what they want." And the second half of Glass Menagerie in that production was a comedy. Oh, jeez, because like, that's what they the kids forced wanted. it up and not, yeah. not super, but All they right. played the funnier bits funnier, and they played the serious bits less serious. Okay, um, and it was fascinating to watch. And there was a great Q and A with the actors where they could barely hide their contempt for what they had to do <laughs> and it was really interesting but yeah. that's that's kind of the thing if you feel like your audience needs this thing you give them that mm-hmm. it's difficult to do that in film and television because it's not live you yeah. don't know if your approach is going to really appeal to them and it just feels like they were so desperate to be liked by young kids not like the mature people who have read Shakespeare even mature kids mm-hmm. who have read Shakespeare and respect Shakespeare and understand why it's still relevant today and and some of its historical context, some of which the show gets okay, some of which it blatantly <laughs> ruins. Uh, 
you know, you, you could have had that and it could have worked, but they were going for the teen demographic. Mm. I'm sure this must have been a hell of a pitch. I understand going for this, but man, the the way it came out is fucking absurd. Like, this is one of the most absurd <laughs> shows we've ever seen. Because for every oh, neat God. idea, good performance, decent dramatic moment, there's a scene, we were talking about this the other mm. day as we were getting through it, where Shakespeare, played by a young actor who has relatively little experience mm. named Laurie Davidson, he had a very small role in Vampire Academy, uh, and it's him, and he's there with his love interest, and he walks out into an alleyway and just leans back well, like James Dean uh. and just says... How art thou? How art thou? Oh, well, this, this this came in a, a point in the series where like he had just started. He he's already married Dan Shakespeare, has three kids, but mm-hmm. he's gone, at the beginning of the show. At the beginning of the show, and he's he's left Stratford and he's gone to London to, to begin his career. He's almost immediately started having an affair with this woman, mm-hmm. and who is you know very smart and helps him write these plays, mm-hmm. and she helps with the costume. She's the daughter of uh, Burbage. Uh, Burbage, who owns the the theater, and they had an affair and they had to break it off. And so they're kind of broody and really upset about that. And they're, so, they're just so... It's like they're stars, but they're they're crossing in some way. They're, <laughs> they're stars crossing lovers. And yeah, that's when he kind of like wanders out into the alleyway and she's doing some bit of business. And he just sort of leans against the walls. Hey, how art thou? How, how art thou doing? You okay, babe? And it, you just want to smack the bastard. Um <laughs> And yeah, it's not but, the actor's uh, fault. He's being asked to deliver almost undeliverable scenes in dialogue. Yeah, so this, it, it's trying to strike this weird balance between the heightened poetry of Elizabethan times and this really dumbed-down modern teen like, like patois mm-hmm. that just does not fit with it at all. And, and so you have scenes like that where he just sort of like goes out into the alleyway and says, "Hey, how art thou?" And you <laughs> you just put your face in your hands. You're like, "Oh God!" And it's absurd. If Let's, I'm if I'm t- introducing Shakespeare to a teenager, I'm not showing them this show. Oh, no. oh God, no. No, no, no. Here's, okay, so let's let's run down the cast real fast. Right. So again, we have Laurie Davidson as mm-hmm. William Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, uh, Olivia de Jong mm-hmm. as Alice Burbage. Uh, she, she was the girl from The Visit. Yeah, she's really good in mm-hmm. that. Uh, she was in a horror movie I didn't care for, but her role was good, called mm-hmm. Better Watch Out. Um, on the other end of things, we have Richard Topcliffe. Uh, who is Queen Elizabeth's torturer. Um. And Queen Elizabeth, after the whole Mary Queen of Scots debacle, uh, mm. is really anti-Catholic. So uh, well, the big the, subplot... The, in Richard the... Topl- Topcliffe was a real guy. He yeah. was considered like the chief torturer of, of Elizabeth I. And yeah, he, he was tasked with anti-Catholic crimes. Um, according to... I mean, he was a monster, mm-hmm. but... According to history, what I, little I know about him, his character was actually much more like Anton Chigurh from <laughs> No Country for Old Men. Like he was, he was more business minded, and he was very cold. And in this one, he's he's like smacks his lips, well, and he's completely lascivious. He's played by Ewan Bremner, an actor I train spotting, an yeah. actor I really like, and uh-huh. I love it when he gets because he usually has to play like kind of the funny sidekick guy. Like you'll mm. see him play basically that character in Wonder Woman, and he's good at that. Mm. Here, he's got a role that it's big, it's melodramatic, it's probably not historically accurate, but it's meaty. It, There's a lot of meat well, on the bone. Fun. For him. It's, it's fun. fun. He it's, gets to yeah. torture people. He gets to be a religious uh, bigot. Uh-huh. Um, he gets to have and but and what happens is over the course of the series, and if you know your Shakespearean history, mm. uh, Richard the Third was at least arguably was partially 
if not entirely, it's, a takedown of this guy. One potential interpretation, but it's, yes, it's it's one it's one of the popular interpretations that uh-huh. Richard the Third, a historical play about a wicked royal who used uh, mm-hmm. murder and torture and all of these evil things in order to get ahead, uh-huh. uh, was meant to be seen as ha ha. We're actually talking about Richard Topcliffe. Now, the way they staged that conceit with over the course of the show first of all that's half of the show or of of this series probably the second half like of the, the second season, half yeah. of the season is all devoted to we're gonna write this show it's gonna we're gonna write this play it's gonna be called richard the third and you know what it's based on top cliff and if we stage it he's going down we like will the, destroy the, you. The, the conceit that this one play in the middle of london is just gonna destroy richard top well the idea now, is play- that it would it would it would sully his reputation and reputation um, was Everything I at under- the time. Look, so that's I what it. they say in dialogue. Yeah, the play could never have been quite that powerful, especially this early in Shakespeare's career. No one would have given a damn. Right. Also, the character of Gloucester had appeared in three plays previous to Richard the Third. Because Richard III is the fourth part of a tetrad, the York Tetrad, which mm-hmm. included the the Henry VI plays and ended with Richard III. So they were already setting up that character, and presumably they would have been played by the same actor as in the previous parts. So if they had set this up as a, a criticism of Topcliffe, they would have been doing it all along. It wouldn't have been this big build-up to Richard III. They wouldn't have passed off the role to somebody else. I'm going to throw it out there, and I'm going to mm. play devil's advocate for a second. Okay. You know who else was kind of shaky with their history? Mm. William Shakespeare. Well, yes. Fine. Fair. <laughs> he he warped he wrote- Shakespeare in order to meet his dramatic ends uh. all the time. Now, he happened to be great at it. Uh. But the actual act of doing it is not in in and of itself the worst thing in the world. Mm. So, I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to be I'm, I'm not that's I'm not, talking about just simple staging and okay. the the world that the play was being staged within. I'm not talking about actual history here. All right, anyway. Uh, real fast, I want to I want to get through the rest of the cast because they, right. they deserve it. Uh, uh, Richard Burbage, the mm-hmm. uh, lead young hunky actor of the theater, is played by a relatively new actor mm-hmm. named Matthias Inwood. Uh, he was in the Shannara Chronicles, and he's going to be on some mermaid show called Tidelands. Which Can't wait for that one to be canceled. Decent chance we'll be reviewing that. Um, we've got James Burbage, mm-hmm. who owns the theater, played by the great Cole Mamini. <laughs> a column. Is it Cullum? Cullum meaning. I didn't realize there was an I in there. Or is it well, there's no I, but okay. it's C-O-L-M, but he's okay. Irish, so it's Cullum. Good to know. Yeah. Thank you very much. I didn't know that. So Cullum Meany, uh-huh. uh, he was in Star Trek The Next Generation and then Star Trek Deep Space Nine. More mm-hmm. recently, he starred in Hell on Wheels. He's a really good actor, but like everyone just kind of knows him from Star Trek, so it's nice well, to see or, him get to play a big or role. Or The Commitments. Or The Commitments. Yeah. I like that movie, too. He was in, wasn't he in The Van as he well? He was in The Van. That's yeah. also a good one. Um, then we have uh, Robert Southwell, who is the Catholic leader. Who S- wants, Subtle. Is it Subtle? Subtle. It's pronounced Subtle. I'm bad with the pronunciations. Right. <laughs> I apologize. Uh, Robert Subtle, he is a Catholic mm-hmm. uh, uh, underground leader who he's wants an un- to... underground priest. And he, is, he just happens to be William Shakespeare cousin and he wants William Shakespeare to write a book that they can give to the queen which will solve all their problems Uh, words 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 the faith people have in Shakespeare's words in this series is embarrassing Uh, (laughs) because again Shakespeare was just coming up and yes he's Shakespeare and he's still good we understand who he is and we understand that he's good and a lot of people who read his stuff are instantly attracted to his words Mm -hmm. um Richard Burbage, Richard Burbage asks him at one point to pen a sonnet because he's trying to seduce uh, an aristocrat and mm-hmm. pen a sonnet in his name, which Shakespeare would have done for like a buck. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, you know, everybody's like, yeah, pen me a sonnet because you're good at that sort of thing. But he's like, he's like a freelancer. 
Yeah. He's like a, a, an Elizabethan freelancer. He's just doing things for hire for most mm-hmm. the most part. He's, he's doing kind it for of, the money. Yeah, rearranging plays at the last minute. He doesn't have like some sort of grand scheme. And that they think that he can like pen a play. Both he and um, uh, uh, b- 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 Topcliffe. Yeah. Ask him to pen plays in honor of their respective causes. Uh, no, no, no. Southern doesn't want him to do a play. Southern wants him to write a book. A book. And yeah. also, and yeah, and, and I think Topcliffe wanted him to write a play. Yes. And yeah, playwrights were hired to do that sort of thing. People like Shakespeare weren't yet. Mm-hmm. He hadn't had like a, a huge reputation until around Titus Andronicus, if I recall, um, which was like maybe his, I actually have a chronology here. It was his sixth published play. Right. Titus Andronicus, by the way, if you haven't seen Julie Taymor's Titus, it's so good. It's so damn good. It's like the best film version you're going to get of that play. It's not <laughs> particularly like from from like a, a play perspective, from uh. a writing perspective. Uh, it is kind of tawdry, oh, and it's salacious. Super and sal- this it's is the just one that, violent is, it, it's, and mean. It's violent. There's murder. There's rape and revenge. There's cannibalism in it. It's, yeah, it's, 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 it's Shakespeare's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yeah, basically. And, yeah, and it was. To this day, like, well, during his lifetime was his biggest hit. Yeah. So it wasn't until around that point in his career when he really kind of, things started to take off and he started writing his better known comedies that Royals maybe would have gotten his attention, would have asked him to do that sort of thing. Alas. Um, maybe I'm getting my history all wrong here, but from yeah. what I understand, yeah, the, the, the fact that they know he's already Shakespeare mm-hmm. is a little embarrassing. Anyway, uh, the last person in the cast, and I wanted to save him mm-hmm. for last because he gets the oddest role. Uh, is we have Christopher Marlowe, mm-hmm. and he is played by Jamie Campbell Bower. Jamie Campbell Bower played the tattooed, shirtless, you know, omnivorously sexual hunk in Mortal Instruments, City of Bones, the movie, not the show. Uh, he also, and I think this is really interesting, mm-hmm. played the young Earl of Oxford in Anonymous. No kidding. Which means he played oh, young, kind of Shakespeare. Kind of Shakespeare. That's yeah. right, because that, that was an Oxfordian. One of the theories about Shakespeare's plays is that he didn't write them at all, and the Earl of Oxford had to hire this guy, who was a real person, William Shakespeare, to stand in as the playwright. Yeah. the earls don't write plays. Right. The And, and the fundamental belief, neither... Whitney nor I go in for this theory that Shakespeare didn't write his own plays because the only real Mm. thing at the heart of that, the only real reason not to believe that William Shakespeare wrote the plays, you can look at circumstantial evidence all you Mm. want and weird references and whatever. The only real reason is because you don't think a poor person could write something good. Yeah, that's kind of what it all boils down he, he, to. He was he had no formal education. Never mind that he had access to books and he was just really well read. Yeah, and that's something they actually have in Will. There's a, a bit where they, this is so embarrassing. They say, I, I, "I'm looking for an idea for a play." William Shakespeare says, "It's like, well, have you heard about this new Spanish play? It has an interesting story, and it's you should ad- adapt that into the Two Gentlemen of Verona." It's like, okay, I'm going to go do that because I'm Shakespeare. I'm going to write Two Gentlemen of Verona, and. <laughs> And he's like, well, this is a great story. What am I going to do? And somebody says, you should just steal it. Ah, uh, yes, I shall just steal it. Well, he feels a little bad about it, but he says, mm. I'll only do it the one time. Mm. <coughs> William Shakespeare did that throughout his entire career. That, that's at, like, every play. Pretty much every play. Like, <laughs> not, hardly anything he wrote was even remotely original. It was based the, on history or one, other plays or other films, books. Or films. The, his plays he wrote, like, near the end of his career, the really weird ones that you don't read in school, stuff like... Um, Timon of Athens. No, I guess Timon of Athens was in the middle of his career. But yeah, like Pericles and Cymbeline, like those plays that you don't ever see staged anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, those ones were more original. 
those were based on sort of original ideas. They're also really hard to pin down in terms of genre because there's a lot of tragic stuff in them that they end with marriages and big happy things. And, yeah. and then like deaths happen along the way and then they're just sort of forgotten about. Uh, Winter's Tale has a 16 year gap in the action, which doesn't happen in any of the other plays. Yeah. Um, those were the original ones. He ripped off everything throughout his entire career. But in any case, Marlowe was a contemporary mm. of William Shakespeare. He died in the middle of William Shakespeare's career, yeah. but um, they were in, around in at the ba- same time. In a bar brawl. Oh, yeah. They were around at the same time. And in in Will, Marlowe <laughs> is everything. He is the <laughs> ultimate tattooed bisexual mega hunk. Uh, he, he, he's just gay in this. Is he just gay? I thought the impression he was bi, but no, okay, he's just gay. Uh, I, I I think both Shakespeare and Marlowe in real life were bi AF, but uh, yeah, yeah. In, in the show, he he's only seen canoodling with other men. You're right. My apologies, mm. but um, uh, yeah, he is. He's having orgies. Mm. He is playing with the dark arts. He when he <laughs> they, writes, he doesn't just write. He screams and yells things around around his room mm. and says, "Why can't I write?" Ah! And there was uh, Marlowe's arc throughout the series of uh, Will is that he he's he has he's blocked he can't write a play and this is right before he's about to write Doctor Faustus mm-hmm. his most celebrated his, play probably his masterpiece uh, yeah um, so he's looking for inspiration he's out of it so what he does is yeah he's tinkering with death. He's mm-hmm. skirting himself up to the, the darkness and mm-hmm. he's burying dark- himself alive just to see yeah. what being dead is like. And yeah, uh, he's like asking these like really tough theological questions. What is evil? What is the nature of evil? Does the devil exist? Introduce me to him. He wants to <laughs> he wants to meet the devil because ev- eventually he's gonna write Dr. Faustus. And Yeah. My favorite but the things he does to get inspired are take drugs take part in like bloodletting satanic rituals and have just like mindless boy orgies. Yeah. My favorite moment <laughs> maybe in the whole series mm-hmm. is uh so the whole season mm-hmm. basically with Marlowe is him mostly on the sidelines working on Faustus mm-hmm. now or Faust and oh, uh, Dr. Faustus Dr. Fa- was it originally called Dr. Faustus yeah okay Dr. Fa- Faust was Goethe and that was later my so. apologies that's where I got that confused right. uh, but it's mostly that he's also working as a spy for Topcliffe but we'll talk about which is weird but Mar- we'll Marlo talk about was a spy we'll talk about that in a minute right. but like so after this whole seasonal arc where he like plunged into the depths of his soul mm-hmm. and finally worked out this groundbreaking play where we're gonna put the devil on stage which people are like, ooh, mm-hmm. how what a strange, creepy thrill that would be. Ah, oh, and he finally, like in the second, like the last episode, is like, I finally found it. I've done this play. I'm going to meet the devil. I'm going to put the devil on stage. And someone just says, you know, Shakespeare's doing that. It's called Richard the <laughs> Third. What? I guess I should go see that. <laughs> Tosses his manuscript and says, "Fucketh thou." <laughs> Which is admittedly pretty funny. That was. Yeah. I admittedly thought that was pretty damn funny. Like his reaction, like what? Ah, damn it. (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) To be fair, I've read Dr. Faustus. It's quite a good play. Oh, absolutely. No, no. It's just it's just funny that like it's it's Hollywood synergy. Two of the same thing. Like we're just gonna make Mm. someone a bunt like the source of all evil, Mm. literally in Faustus, metaphorically in Richard the Third, just came out at the same time. It's actually pretty funny because this the end of this series, which is just over with, it's not coming back. Mm. Um, it was actually just cancelled like three days ago. So we actually were hedging our bets a little bit by putting this on the Was it only officially cancelled? It was only only officially cancelled like three days before. Because it came out because it aired in the summer. It aired from July tenth to September. September 4th, 2017. Mm. Like, I thought it was yeah. over. 
<laughs> didn't realize it wasn't official. Mm. I'm glad this worked out. Well, oh well, maybe it was. Can, I guess it was canceled a year ago, like three days ago. Ah, um, okay, that makes but yeah, sense. It, it lines up directly with the beginning of the 1998 film Shakespeare in Love. Because if you recall, they're auditioning roles for Romeo and Juliet, which hadn't been penned yet at the end of Will. And the uh, people who are auditioning for the role are all taking the speech from Dr. Faustus. Is this the face oh, that launched yeah. a thousand ships? Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. You're and, right. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow got the role because she knew a speech from King Henry VI. That's right. Yeah. So <laughs> William Shakespeare, uh, Shakespeare in Love, by the way. Uh-huh. Got a it gets a bum rap because it won Best Picture over Saving Private mm-hmm. Ryan. It's overrated. It's but overrated. it's but you know yeah. what? If it didn't win Best, it's one of those movies. If it didn't win Best Picture, we'd still be talking about it. You think so? I think so. I, I think it would be a minor thing. But I think it'd be like things you know, talk a, about in class. You know, it was a, a good lot, movie. Yeah. It was a minor hit in the nineties. Got a couple of Oscars. Shakespeare in Love. Mm. That's a good movie. You should see that. It's cute. <laughs> I can feel the same way about the artist. If the artist hadn't won Best Picture, if it had mm. only won like Best Actor, uh huh. I think we'd all be saying, you know what was cute? The artist. You should see that. It's a nice little movie. But once you put it up on a pedestal as the best picture of the year, uh, you're just like, well, clearly it's not. Right. And so immediately becomes worse than it is. Mm. It's fine. It's Shakespeare in Love is cute. I like Shakespeare in Love. It's full of puns, which is great. Mm. Um, uh, oh, uh, and something they do in Shakespeare in Love, which they do incessantly in Will, is quote Shakespeare lines of dialogue before they were written. Mm-hmm. And, it, and occasionally you see Shakespeare write them down in a notebook. No. Ooh, that's a good one. Mm. I'm going to put that in a place. Oh. And i got to tell you something. As insufferable as that can sometimes be, imagine it. Mm. Imagine you're writing a series about William Shakespeare. Mm. People quote Shakespeare every day without even realizing it. <laughs> Shakespeare, and this is something they talk about in the show, Shakespeare invented a lot of words we still use today. Mm-hmm. He invented turns of, of turns of phrase and expressions mm-hmm. we still use today in casual conversation. The, the word bedazzled is hammered on a lot early in the series. In the, in the first episode, bedazzled is, is mm-hmm. like a thing, which admittedly is one of the dumber words he invented. But mm-hmm. it's still like, you know, it's it would be hard to write Shakespeare out of your vocabulary. Right, right, right. And yet... Here you're doing something about Shakespeare. If you and I were writing a, a story about William Shakespeare, and wouldn't we be tempted? You'd be tempted, right? I, I'd be tempted, and it would be a temptation I would fight down. I and think. I would I fight would... to put it in there. I think it's fun and mm. playful. Mm. It, if that was the only thing the yeah. show did, that would be fun and playful. I, I, I suppose so. The problem well, is, it's all these other things. Yeah, it's it's it's. It's a, f- a fruit salad of all kinds of dumb. The first episode opens with William Shakespeare, and he's writing already, just mm. scrivening. And uh, his his wife comes in, and like the first line of dialogue in the whole show is, Who would want a play written by William Shakespeare? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, we've got that line for the trailer. Thanks, and Shakespeare. <laughs> and the whole gag is, he's he's a he makes gloves. It's soul-crushing work. He's a writer. He wants to write. He wants to move to London, try his luck. Mm. He'll send money back for the wife and kids, who he really doesn't care about very much. Mm. And that's it. And so it's once he leaves with a note from his uncle saying, Give this to the Catholic resistance. It might be important later. 
Shakespeare leaves and walks to England from Stratford-on-Avon, and as he leaves, <laughs> London Calling starts playing on the soundtrack. So you know, this so. isn't your grandfather's Shakespeare. Mm. This is your father's Shakespeare, <laughs> because <laughs> that's an old song. <laughs> One's London Calling, 1979. Yeah, yeah it's, that's an old song. <laughs> in fact, all of the, not all, most. But most of the song choices are like punk songs from the 1970s. And There's 70s, 80s, a little mm. bit of 90s. I may have heard something There's, from the 2000s. But it's a lot of it's. There's James Brown. Mm. There's the Cure. There um, was a uh, 20th Century Boy. Is there's a scene where Shakespeare mm. goes into Marlowe's boy orgy party, God. and in the back of the boy orgy party, there somebody has just come back from the New World, and they've brought an Indian peace pipe, and it's full of like black tar heroin, I guess. I they smoke some kind of horrible. I guess it's peyote. And yeah, so yeah. it's kind of odd to see these these Elizabethan figures passing around a peace pipe and getting high. But while there, uh, 20th century boys playing on the soundtrack. It doesn't mm-hmm. help that the and, actor who plays Marlowe looks a lot like Jonathan Rhys Myers. And on so I'm t- thinking of Velvet Goldmine. And then on top of that, that segues into as William Shakespeare has a drug induced freak out and starts punching people mm. and screaming because of his Catholic guilt and running out of the party as sabotage starts playing from the Beastie Boys. Oh my god, <laughs> it's. Mm. You, you, you get it? We're cool. <laughs> or we would have been cool in the 90s. Anyway. Stand it, I cannot. I know thou hast planned it. Sorry. <laughs> uh, just... That took me a second. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tonight's episode of Will featured music by the Beastie Boys. <laughs> um, so he goes to England. The He's... boys that are beastly, and it's I.E. You go... He goes to England. Mm-hmm. First thing, because it's a story about a, a small town guy moving to the big city. Mm-hmm. First thing that happens is, is he gets his pocket picked. Well, and he like gets there's his, a ragamuffin who he, picks his pocket, and the ragamuffin ends up having his own story arc. He's a character named Presto, um, and Presto is not based on any sort of historical figure, unless maybe. he changes his name later and yeah, it's like, oh yeah, I'm uh, Daniel Webster. That's that's who I am. Uh, yeah, maybe I'll grow up to be Francis Bacon, even though at the time he doesn't work out. Um, well, we we. We met Francis. Oh, wait, we met Francis Bacon. Yeah, yeah so he's not okay. Francis Bacon. Um, yeah, so this this kid finds out that, like, early on that he's a Catholic, stabs him in the hand uh, as a mark. Uh, Shakespeare runs off to the theater to sort of hide out while um, a lot, lock, Topcliffe, Topcliffe is on his trail. Yeah, Topcliffe. He, he Presto, tells, Lockwood Pre- for some Presto tries to sell the information to Topcliffe in mm-hmm. the hopes that Topcliffe will give him enough money. That Presto will be able to buy his sister's freedom from this really gross bordello she works mm-hmm. at. Like, like I mean, gr- not a nice bordello. No, <laughs> like not like one of those movie bordellos yeah. where it seems okay. Like just pretty gross. Yeah, and that's his plot for about half the season is him trying to get his mm-hmm. sister out of it. Um, and yeah, that that doesn't go well. Topcliffe knows that there is some writer out there with a stabbed hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is a Catholic, and he puts Marlowe on the case. Marlowe figures out real fast that it's Shakespeare. Yeah, he's the only one. Uh So, but the problem is, Marlowe figures it out, and he tells, get Topcliffe, and then immediately, Shakespeare, who was hired to Mm. ghostwrite a play really fucking quick. Uh Like, we we need a new play by tomorrow, the theater is going under, Shakespeare volunteers to do it, along with a guy named Baxter, who's Mm. just this insufferable... Uh, real, uh, real playwright, though. Real playwright, but he's yeah. insufferable in the show. Mm-hmm. And um, while the people are going off to get Topcliffe's men to go and kidnap and kill Shakespeare, Marlowe actually watches the play and he realizes this guy has talent. I can't let Topcliffe kill him. <laughs> so he, so Kid Marlowe cuts Baxter's hand and says, "That's the Catholic." 
Which so, is sells which, out Baxter just to save Shakespeare. Which is actually kind of a fun plot point. Mm. It's unexpected. It's pretty we, cool. Unfortunately, that doesn't come back. Like Baxter doesn't break out of prison and some. Well, well the, the of next course e- that didn't happen. Well, but. in the next episode, we see Baxter being tortured. Mm. It doesn't go anywhere. Baxter dies, and this ends up being this point of extreme guilt for Will, who again is a Catholic. And mm. guilt, as speaking as a, a former Catholic, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a baked, big, baked into the bread. It's kind of baked into mm. uh, uh, the. the Theology of it, mm. you know, that's the whole point of confession. You're supposed to feel bad when you do bad things. Mm. That's part of the religion. And Will takes that into account and it really starts driving him. However, Will is also an asshole. Because Will immediately begins having an affair with Alice Burbage. And I know that both young actors, the guy who played Will is a younger actor, but he's married with two kids mm. and he looks older than Alice Jong. So he really looks like he's just being the it's, creepy it's, it's like he's creeping on his summer intern you know yeah. and and she's fine with it and they try to play it off as star-crossed lovers but as mm. the series progresses and like Anne Shakespeare shows up mm. in London unexpectedly and they have to hide and Alice Burbage is just mm. like oh I, I, I didn't really think about it before and I'm just like yeah you're young and he's taking advantage of you mm. even if he doesn't realize he is because you're young and you're naive and you don't understand the ramifications mm. of this first affair mm. there having with an older man, a married man, who cannot and will not marry you because you just don't do that at the time. (laughs) So it's really fucked. And then her whole subplot, so she starts off kind of as Shakespeare's equal. She wants to run the theater. She Mm. wants to, she's she's a feminist. She's Colomini's daughter too. So she's kind of, Richard Burbage is just sort of flighty and dumb and Mm -hmm. interested in very shallow things and breasts. He has a, a speech to that effect. Like, what's important to you? Drinking and breasts. Ah, you're my Falstaff, and you're also my Falstaff. Um, Whatever. Whatever. And, uh, but yeah, it's uh, Alice that is the one who's sort of poised to take over the theater when it will inevitably be handed handed to her because Colomini's kind of looking to get out of the game. He's been in it for a while. Yeah, and he's not a great businessman. He had a good idea opening up this theater, Mm -hmm. you know, putting together a troupe. It's relatively successful, but he's swimming in debt now, and it's not great. So they're constantly trying to marry Alice off to some... Honestly, they could have made it a lot worse. Just some well-intentioned but not interesting Baxter of a man. Not who, not Baxter, but a oh, Baxter. <laughs> sorry. The, the trope of the Baxter, which was coined relatively recently, like 10 years ago. Mm. Uh, the idea of, in a romantic story, usually romantic comedy... There are two people who are destined to be together, but... They're dating other people. They're dating other people. And if the person that they're dating is not a bad person, they're just not good for them, mm. that's called a Baxter. Because they're kind of inherently a pathetic creation. Bill and Pullman so, is, I think, the er example of this from Sleepless in Seattle. Yeah, Bill Pullman is great. I would he's marry a, Bill Pullman in that. Well, he's a wonderful he, human he, being. He makes funny jokes. He's mm-hmm. he's well off. He's really warm and gregarious. Like, his one flaw is that he has allergies. Which, and that's kind of an, an inconvenience for her. Who gives a like, shit? So what? Just yeah. date him and deal with his freaking allergies. Yeah, give get him, him. Give him, him some Claritin. Don't go to places he can't go. Yeah. It, he, it's not presented as like, he's not living in a plastic bubble. Yeah, when he, when she breaks up with him in that movie, he, she doesn't even, he just graciously just, backs out. Just, just like, listen, I don't want to be the person you settle for. I don't want the person anyone would settle for. This is very disappointing. Go to Tom Hanks. Uh-huh. And it's just like, wow, he's cool. <laughs> 
So like, so this guy he that, ends up marrying somebody awesome like Tilda Swinton or something. You know? <laughs> I would love to find that out. That'd be great. But yeah, so Alice is trying to get married off to this decent enough Baxter who mm-hmm. eventually backs away so that she can continue having an illicit affair. And With when a that con- man. and when that continues to go bad, her subplot goes stupid. Well, she she feels so bad about having this affair. And she's already kind of floating around all of this, like, Catholic underground that she decides to convert and devote her her life to Christ. And it becomes a Catholic... But but through Catholicism and and not Protestantism. And becomes a Catholic radical. Like, Mm. you know, Southall, he wants to, like, overtake the the government and everything that they, like, mm. treat him as, like... The way that the show treats... It wouldn't be the first time somebody converted out of spite, but... True. The way that the show treats Catholicism is really, really weird because half of it Mm -hmm. is they're trying to make a parallel between like how Catholicism was treated in Elizabethan England Mm. and how, say, the Muslim faith is treated in America now, which Uh is there's literally nothing wrong with it, but there are some radicals out there who give it a really bad name and a lot of people are really afraid and the government has unfortunately a really gross history of torturing people. Um, however, there's also this weird undercurrent that occurs, like, and, and like, the first time we see, uh, 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 Topcliffe, when he's uh-huh. torturing people, he's waterboarding someone, and I'm pretty sure that wasn't a thing. Um, was it a I, thing I'd back to, then? You know what, look it up. I think that might have been invented okay. in Elizabethan times. But the fact but yeah, that they I mean, chose that as the first example of torture cannot be a coincidence. No, that that was they defi- were, that was a definite. Um, they were trying to create a parallel. Choice, the yeah. other parallel that I think they try to create over time in that there's a whole bunch of mm. uh, people who are converting to this outsider religion. Mm. It's seen as strange, but it is giving these very artistic, strange, eccentric individuals in the entertainment industry. Mm. Uh, a sort of rebellious piece. I think after a while, they're also trying to equate Catholicism to Scientology. Oh, I didn't see that. When, yeah, when, that when makes, like Marlowe expresses sense. interest yeah, in yeah. Scientology, I get the impression mm. that's like John Travolta going, "I don't know, this whole fame thing is weird." Mm. What do you What are you doing, Tom Cruise, mm. or whatever? I don't know how it actually happened right. or what the time uh, was. Waterboarding was invented during the Spanish Inquisition in 1556. So yeah, it's contemporary. It. Shakespeare was in. This, it wasn't. It wasn't it was, late fifteen hundred. Late fifteen hundred. So yeah, 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 yeah. there had just been forty years later. It, it had fair been, enough. It had been in use. So yeah, it was well, a thing. I'm, I'm glad we we yeah. we settled the history of that. So <laughs> good good for them. It was accurate. And now but, I've looked up waterboarding on Wikipedia, and I'm gonna get some. I'm gonna get on some weird government lists. I'm sure. Yeah. Um. Mm. So uh. Yeah. So they mm. put on Will's first play. Will finds out that writing a second play is actually kind of difficult. Uh, and then, like well, the, his, f- the first play that he sort of co-authored. Yeah, and so he puts he tries to write another play. Everyone mm. tells him it sucks. Mm. So he ends up stealing uh, The Two Gentlemen of Verona. That's mm. a hit. Um, and then he starts working on his Henry and, and, plays. But, and he gets, he gets a really bad reputation because of the dog. There's a funny dog in it. Yeah, so everyone's and that, like... that oh. is L- Launce and Crab are these sort of side clown characters mm. in this not very interesting story. But they're, they are the, the highlights of that play. Uh, meanwhile, mm. um, such events go on as uh, an iambic pentameter slam... Oh God! Much like in the movie Eight Mile, where there was like there were there were rap competitions in order to insult your opponent, Will gets in an iambic pentameter slam in a bar. Mm. When when uh, uh, I was I was reading this, did you ever see that film Ridicule? The French no, film. No, I didn't. I heard it was from, good. From though. Night. It's quite good, and mm. and it is based on sort of if if you can orchestrate an appropriate jibe you can literally you can take someone's life apart like in a single evening yeah just with a single jibe there's a really good episode of avatar the last airbender where they had a haiku slam <laughs> and it was really mm-hmm. great uh but laurie davidson 
he mm. was, I guess he was talking in an interview or Shaker Kapoor was, mm. uh, that he was told not to focus on other portrayals of Shakespeare, like in Shakespeare in Love, mm. but to watch films like Eight Mile and Straight Outta Compton, which mm. is very, like, and I get it. I do. At the I, same I, time, I, it's I, not the same thing. I get it. And if that's your approach, you need to make it feel that much more modern. And, you know, they're really trying with some of the production design, with the music choices. But if that's... Uh, you got to pick one. You're yeah. Romeo and Juliet uh-huh. or you're Shakespeare in Love. Pick one of those things. This middle ground where you're trying to be both things, like the mm. sort of cutesy, self-referential, but otherwise historically accurate version. Mm. Or you're trying to make really modernize it. And here it's just... You're watching it, and you're watching... Eh, sometimes it just feels like a somewhat respectable, youth-oriented historical drama. And then in the middle of singing a period-appropriate song at a bar, mm. they start yelling, Get on top of that thing! Yeah, get, get, and dance to you, feel better! I'm like, what? It's get, get up off of that thing. Get up yeah. off of that thing. So. <laughs> I, uh, I was wrong. You, you Philistine, you don't know your James Brown. Listen, when they make a, a television series about a young James Brown... They made a movie about a young James Brown. I you know, saw that's, it. That's actually a great movie. That's actually a really great yeah. movie. If people, if you did not see Get On Up, yeah. that movie is amazing and mm. nobody's... Like, not enough people saw it. I thought it was going to be a huge hit, get some Oscar nominations. Mm. Nope. Didn't really Nobody happen. Cared. It's a shame. It's really it's, cool. It's really quite good. <coughs> I digress. Awesome performance in the center by Chadwick Boseman. Oh my god, yeah. fucking fantastic! Mm. Should have got an Oscar nomination. Should have won. Yes, <laughs> he's, he's amazing. Mm. Um, but yeah, so this is what I'm trying to think. Mm. The episodes aren't really super episodic. Like there isn't just like here's the episode where this yeah, happens. Um, it it well, all they, kind of flows into each they other. They are in that they kind of bunch around the plays as they come up. So mm. we we follow Shakespeare's career from the beginning through Richard the Third. And Richard III was published in late 1590s, like 1590, let me look it up here, 1592. Mm -hmm. Um, So he had written like five plays at this point. It's the first five plays of his career. We don't get into the big ones, you know. Well, Um, Richard III is a big one, in fact. Richard III is like, yeah, I guess the first, the the earliest big one. Did you ever see that Al Pacino documentary, Looking for Richard? I haven't. You haven't seen that? I've I've seen uh, Richard Longcrane's Richard III with uh, Ian McKellen. That's my favorite adaptation. That's a great version. Sort of takes place in this alternate World War II universe. That's a great version. I love that version. But I also love Al Pacino's Looking for Richard. It is a documentary about Al Pacino researching William Shakespeare and putting on his own production of Richard III with himself mm. in the lead. So half of it is actually scenes from Al Pacino's Richard III and half mm. of it is a production about the How history... The, 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 history together, the, yeah. the history of the play and the production that he put together. And it's really quite fascinating. Um, and one of the things to talk about is Richard III, you know, although it's not quite as famous as, say, Romeo and Juliet mm. or Hamlet, it is actually, at the time, his historically the most produced play. Mm. People put that one on more than any other. Huh. And I thought that was really, really interesting because Shakespeare, Richard III is fucking amazing. He's, like, even by Shakespeare standards, that movie, that, that play is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's so damn good. Well, because it, it finally... I, I've, I've watched uh, all four of the Orc Tetrad in, like, over the course of, like, four days. Mm. So... And, Braggart. <laughs> sure, why not? Call me a varlet. Um... <laughs> No, I, I was just really determined to watch all of the BBC Shakespeare productions at one point in my life, so I did. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to, rather than forget anything, just sort of marathon through as quickly as I can. Now, the BBC productions, they try to leave in as much of the play as possible. They don't take a lot out. Yeah. So these are long productions. These are like three-and-a-half-hour TV productions, a, a piece. Yeah. And it's really—the the version I saw um, really kind of 
focused on the theatricality of it, the Henry the Sixth Part One. Everything was really artificial. The horses were all fake. Everything looked like a set. There were banners. Everybody was giving really sort of uh, really stagey performances. And as we got to Richard III, the walls began to fall away. The horses mm-hmm. started to become real. Everything became muddy. Oh, so it's the Henry V approach. It's the Henry V approach, but over the course of four plays. If you don't know what we're talking about, mm. uh, there the great uh, theatrical but, version of cinematic version of Henry V. Well, both both uh, famous theatrical versions of Henry V, both Olivier's and Shakespeare's did this. But Olivier did it first. And yeah. it starts off where you're at the Globe Theater yeah. and you're seeing people behind the scenes putting on their costumes. You see Olivier as Henry V getting ready to go on stage. And then gradually, as the film progresses, mm. the artifice falls away until the actual like big battle at St. Christmas mm. Day is actually in a field with real horses. And yeah, yeah. It's amazing. It's, like, it's really amazing. It's really fantastic cinema. Mm-hmm. Um... Will, but yeah, not so much. But yeah, uh, Richard III, we finally sort of focus in on Gloucester, who becomes Richard III, and just sort of his deviousness and how weak-willed Henry VI was. Although, why are the plays even named after him? He's barely in the first one. Yeah. Um, I I, th- I was a little bit outraged because they say, I'm going to put on Henry VI, and they somebody's charges out on stage and says, let's kill all the lawyers, which is from Henry VI Part Two. But oh then they turn. it turns out he wrote that one first. But what was really, <laughs> but the most brilliant thing, according oh, to Will, Shakespeare oh ever God. did was when he was writing his history plays, he was like, oh God, what do I do for the sequel? And Alice says, what if you did the play that came before Henry VI? And William yeah, Shakespeare's so not like, a sequel, but a... Prequel? You're a genius! And I'm just like, oh god, fuck you. Oh my god, why would you evoke and the Phantom Menace right now? Why well, would you they, do that? They, they go one further because they say, well, I've come up with a subtitle for for your your first play, this first play in your massive series of plays. And they call it the Dauphin Menace. I forgot about that. You're right. That's insane. Yeah. That's so, insane. So they drop in a reference to Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace in a show about Shakespeare because kids... <laughs> Because because this show is D-U-M dumb. It's really dumb. It is, however, I wonder if it would be interesting, because, listen, it's dumb, but I had a really good time watching it because it's so dumb. Because well, yeah, I just I'm, couldn't I'm, take my eyes off of how dumb it was. I'm having a blast. I was able to steam right through this thing, but I'm, I'm not enjoying it. It's I, stupid. I'm enjoying seeing them try, and I wonder... Mm. If someone, because here's the here's the irony here, and it's one of those things where like I'm not sure who the target demo is. The the plot is so based around actual Shakespearean history and actual mm. Shakespearean plays and dialogue from Shakespeare, and you're really only going to get it if you're familiar with the Shakespeare. That you do have to have a somewhat educated background, at least self educated. You need to have read mm. or seen a bunch of plays to really appreciate what the show is trying to do. Yeah. If you haven't, I have no idea if this is appealing. And ha- as someone who has, you're a bigger buff than I am, but mm. I love me some Shakespeare. And I'm picking up on a lot of these references and a lot of these jokes. Mm. I'm enjoying it because what they're doing to it is dumb. <laughs> it doesn't work. Bless them for trying, I guess. But like, it's such a weird experiment. There was an opportunity, a real opportunity here to go full accurate because I don't think it's really rare that you see just a straight adaptation anymore mm-hmm. of Shakespeare. There's always some kind of weird angle to it now, yeah. uh, which is what I was bitching about at the beginning of the show. And I appreciate that they start with Shakespeare in Stratford going to London. Don't play London Colin. Just go. <laughs> play, play some period-appropriate madrigals as he's going off. And the first play he's seen penning is 
Edward III, which is one of the apocryphal plays. And unless you're like a deep dive Shakespeare buff, you probably wouldn't know that. They probably would start with Edward or with uh, Richard III. Yeah. Uh, not Edward III. And yeah, you've already said this. Uh, if you know a lot about Shakespeare, you're going to appreciate the period detail and you're going to hate all of the big anachronisms. The trick, though. And if you're really digging in the anachronisms, you may not care about a play like Edward III or the story of its staging. Yeah, it's neither fish nor fowl. Mm. I, but wh- where was, where, where was mm. I going? I had a, I had a mm. point. I was, I was, but the other thing is, you talk about like a straight adaptation of mm. Shakespeare's life. The other problem is, we don't know a lot about Shakespeare's life. Yeah. The actual story of, well, this is one of the reasons why there are mm. conspiracy theories about who wrote Shakespeare's plays. Mm. Shakespeare was poor. He was yeah. just this populist writer who was successful mm-hmm. in his time, the, the, but no more so than Marlowe. Like, uh-huh. you know, like it wasn't like and he a lot was of, God. A like, lot of people uh, like to point to this when putting up like Shakespeare didn't write his plays because a lot of them were written down by the actors who performed in them after the fact because mm-hmm. they weren't keeping. They didn't have like an archive. They just performed these things really quickly. They were rewritten the day of. Sometimes they were rewritten right before people were going on stage. There wasn't like one permanent version until the folio, which was like in. Oh gosh, when was the first folio? I don't remember. It was a while later. A while later. Yeah, and um, and and a lot of people also point to the fact that Shakespeare didn't like. Oh, he he didn't own any of his plays. Of course not. They were written for for a company. They owned the plays. (laughs) Yeah, he didn't own Mm. shit. That's not how it worked Mm. back then. That's that's just how it. First folio, sixteen twenty three was the first folio. So it was a while after his death. uh, Yeah, he he died in like sixteen sixteen. Yeah. So yeah, it was after he died, and the actors kind of remembered their parts. Now keep in mind. People's memories were better then. <laughs> That's oh, all you have. I actually marvel um, like, when you think about when you actually know about like how fast the production cycle was mm-hmm. in theater in Shakespeare's time. Like how quickly, not only how quickly Shakespeare wrote all those brilliant plays, mm-hmm. which was again not an uncommon amount of speed at the time, mm-hmm. but how quickly like we'll, we'll write this play and we'll perform it this afternoon. Holy shit! But they did that. That's impressive. That like, happened. I, I, I've done some acting, and I've mm-hmm. and I've been asked that question like not in a while, but like mm-hmm. I did some theater in college and stuff like yeah. that. And people would ask me, "How do you memorize that much dialogue?" And I'm like, "It's not difficult. It's just kind of time consuming, and it's rote, mm-hmm. and then you just learn you just the have words. To keep on doing it and doing it and doing it. And yeah, pretty soon you know it. Yeah. Doing it in an afternoon." Is insanity to me. Like that, I respect. I respect. And granted, there was a lot of. Uh, there wasn't. Again, you were playing to an audience. You played mm. up the parts the audience liked. You messed with the play, especially if it had been played mm. before, uh, to keep people interested and keep people excited. You digressed. You ad libbed. All of this was part of the natural theatrical process. And again, I didn't get to talk about it much, but I like seeing these raucous performances mm. of the plays because it reminds you when we see stuff like Kenneth Branagh's versions of these movies, which are seen as sort of the contemporary gold standard and not without, mm. that's not without merit. He's done three of the best modern Shakespeare adaptations. Henry At least. V, Henry V, Much Ado, and Hamlet are all just peerlessly great films. His other, even his lesser Shakespeare adaptations mm. are still pretty good. Yeah, Love's Lost like, Lost is an interesting experiment. It's fails, I like but it. it's an interesting experiment I, yeah. I like his as you like it which nobody talks about because it was on hbo but mm-hmm. yeah um but like yeah. yeah so like but at but here's the thing mm. at the time that's not how they were performed they were performed faster and there was more emphasis on jokes and mm. and uh interacting with mm. a rowdy audience mm. and that's what shakespeare was and mm. so like when will is focusing on that I, I did dig it. I dug all the behind-the-scenes theater stuff. I, I dug I some so of the much. actual political intrigue, but yeah. whenever it decided to be cute, it just pushed me away and made me giggle. Well, I feel like 
the since they didn't have enough faith in Shakespeare and they didn't have enough faith in their own material, they had to add, you know, first of all, the story of the affair. That's fine. That mm-hmm. would happen in a theater. Um, the subplot about Presto, the young boy who ends up, and we didn't even mention this, he ends up getting sold into prostitution himself mm-hmm. because he's seen in a dress. Because he young, steals, he steals a dress. Young boys from, played the women in in Shakespeare's time. Women so were not allowed on stage. So Presto stole a dress from the stage and mm-hmm. was cavorting around London, pretending to be a young woman, mm-hmm. leading men off in the alleyways to the promise of sexual favors, and then putting a dagger in their throat and saying, "Give me your wallet." Well, and the, the madam sees him in the dress and says, "Well, look at that." You're you're going to be my my boy toy in a dress mm-hmm. prostitute. And of, and of course, his first client is Topcliff. Of course, because of course he is. Mm-hmm. Topcliff. They try to they try to they talk about mm-hmm. when Shakespeare is having trouble writing Richard the Third because it's got to be brilliant mm-hmm. and it's got to be exactly the critique of Topcliff he wants it to be, but also he needs to have a bit of plausible deniability. It needs to be a real play. Mm. And one of the things he realizes is he can't just say Richard III is a monster. He has to humanize him. He has to say, here's why he's a monster. Right. And so the show tries to do that with Topcliff as well and show some of his personal tragedy. There's like a bit where Shakespeare's like, but you're coming to the play tomorrow, mm. right? And Topcliff's just like, you know, I, it's so rare. I, I, my job is so difficult. It's so nice to have someone I can actually trust as a friend. And thank you mm. and this is a monster this is an mm. evil homicidal maniac well, played, but there is a you, but there is bremner, loneliness there there's I, there's some loneliness but you and bremner i think plays him way too broad like there's cruelty in every line reading and that's yeah. fun again but it, I, it's not very human it's not but at the same time you know look around you there are mm. cruel people who are who are that outlandish oh, i guess so so it doesn't strike me as, especially in a show this broad mm. it doesn't strike me as a huge problem right. uh, another actor i just want to give a quick shout out to before we start wrapping this mm. up um uh matthias inwood actually has an interesting role of a bad actor who gradually becomes a better actor yeah and i actually think he sells it really mm. well by the end like he's not only that, that's, playing that's richard, richard burbage yeah. yeah he's not only playing richard the third he's actually showing people the like, thought process of it and you know what Everything he says is fine. Mm. Everything he says is a really well, good the, actorly thing to say. The catalyst for him becoming a better actor is a little bit over the top because the plague is around. Mm-hmm. The, people are constantly making bets as to who's how many people are going to die that day in the plague report. Yeah. <laughs> There's a printed plague report that just goes around the city every day. Yeah. And uh, one of his friends... Um, has a brief affair with this spooky goth chick in a bar... And ends up catching the plague from her and has to go into a plague house. Mm-hmm. And Richard Burbage decides to go into the plague house and look after him in his last days. Yeah. Which is a very noble thing to and do. It's very no- and he comes out and he's a changed man. And well, that's an interesting story. It is, actually. The expediency with which it happens is a little bit, a uh, little bit a insulting. Lot of, it happens between episodes yeah. to like cut to like But that, that he's just this sort of, you know shallow fop on the way in and then just comes out and is very stern like an hour later is uh, it's a little bit too simple but yeah there you That's go true. but regardless it's it's a role that looks really thankless and i just want to give him uh some credit for it um a lot of stuff like i imagine presto probably they had plans for him in future seasons mm-hmm. where we would see that sort of apprentice side of it mm-hmm. maybe he'd get to, maybe he'd, he'd, he'd have play, to play juliet, play juliet. yeah, yeah exactly like something like that that would actually be interesting and that's something we don't get a lot of exploration of the so there's a there's one bit where he has to perform an early version of Midsummer Night's Dream, mm. 
Um, and one of the actors is missing or whatever, and a woman actually has to go on stage and play Titania. Mm. And one of the women in the audience just says, that is the worst, that, that is not how women act. <laughs> that, that young apprentice is terrible. Mm. Like, that's that's something I wish they could have gotten into a little bit more, because that's really interesting. Well, that's Shakespeare in Love, though. It is, but mm. Shakespeare in Love doesn't have a monopoly on that. They, they could have taken I'm, something else yeah, to it. Okay. Shakespeare in Love is a really cutesy version of that, oh, and Will is, isn't afraid to get melodramatic What was that one? with Claire Danes uh, where she played the, the Shakespearean actress and uh, or it was like post Shakespeare's time but it was when women were first allowed on stage but it was Claire Danes from Romeo and Juliet it was Claire Danes and I think it was Billy Crudup really? who played the actor who was being ousted of all the female roles I don't actually oh, know God, that sounds interesting that yeah it was called it was called like just Stage, I'm looking up stage magic or something. Oh, I know. I think yeah. I know. It's stage beauty. Stage beauty. That yeah, was it. you're right. It's stage beauty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I did hear about. Yeah, so that, there was, another, no there was about, another film that dealt with it, but yeah, I, I couldn't even remember the title. I don't so, think anyone's yeah. talked about that movie in like 20 years. So well, it, it, was it, it good? Came, it came out in the mid 2000s, but yeah, was um, it good? Uh, it, it was fair. <laughs> it's vague, vaguely mm-hmm. forgettable, but yeah, it was pretty, all is fair. Yeah. Uh, Mm-hmm. Yeah, in 2004. Fair enough. I remember right. it being more of a late 90s kind oh, of thing, okay. but fair enough. Um, the last kick of that trend. The thing with Will is that if it lasted 100 episodes, it wouldn't have, because we already got to Richard III in season one. This would have gotten, okay, it was well, 10 episodes, this would have gotten to the end of his career by season five So that, that means that Richard III was, I guess, technically his fifth or his sixth play, if mm-hmm. you count Edward III. So if we're going to go on an average of about aver- five aver- plays average, a season. Yeah, like five plays per season. Mm-hmm. He, you know, if you want to include all of the Apocrypha, he could have included like maybe 42 plays all told. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you get to the end of the, his career and that's kind of it. Yeah, it'd be yeah. weird if it continued afterwards. Uh, unless they, they do this clever thing like season six or whenever, you know, after Shakespeare's career. And they fast forward to... The modern day, and they have some of the Shakespeare deniers who are like uncovering new <laughs> secrets, and then we have flashbacks to things oh, that were happening no, off stage. No, thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> I don't go in for any of that. Um, so yeah, we would have seen Romeo and Juliet, and of course, it would have paralleled his relationship with Alice. We would have seen the Twelfth Night, which would have also paralleled his relationship with Alice. We, Shakespeare's son was named okay. Hamlet, apparently. Ha- so. Hamlet. They practically say Hamlet. Yeah. yeah. And so we know that would have gone Mm. somewhere. Like, I'm torn on this show. Because it's dumb. But as a Shakespeare fan, I did enjoy its dumbness. I I enjoy any opportunity to revel in Shakespeare. And I'm glad we had some Shakespeare. The problem is we had so little, like, actual Shakespeare over the course of Will that it was just frustrating. What I want is a drama about the staging of these plays and how he wrote them. I want to see, you know what the, the season finale should have been? The play. Just show the play. Just show the play. That actually would have been That's really great. That's it. That should have been like a deleted scenes on like the mm. DVD. If they didn't put out a DVD. Mm. But like if they put out like a DVD, they should have shown you, they should have put on Richard III with yeah. that crowd. I would love to see that. Mm. That would be amazing. And have reaction shots throughout the entire play, like the yeah. entire production, every word of it from the first folio. That would have been great. But, it, but in three and a half hours, I don't care. Just yeah. that's your season finale. Or or again, just a dynamite, like additional yeah. bonus thing. So if you're going to have all of your drama climax around the play, show the play. Yeah. That's <laughs> fair. And, you know, yes, he was involved in all these really interesting conspiracies, and it's okay to depict some of that, but spend more time in the theater, please, because that is what Shakespeare is known for. That's the good stuff. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. 
So was it was Will canceled too soon? Yeah, like you, I'm a little bit torn because I think I would have liked to see more dumbness, especially around some of the more popular plays. Yeah, like the Twelfth Night episode or the Hamlet episode. I'm gonna I'm gonna volunteer this as a possibility, and you can take me up on this if you want. Hmm. I think maybe we should split. Like our vote on this. So I'm going to say that Will, dumb as it is, and it's super dumb, was canceled too soon because it was exuberant and silly. And there are a couple of things it did right, and I appreciated that. And in every episode, there was something so dumb I couldn't believe it, and I appreciated that, and good for them. So I'm going to say it was canceled too soon. Well, in that case, I'll say no, it wasn't canceled too soon. Just so we can balance it out, uh, because there is just so much dumbness in here. Shakespeare's own language can carry you so far, and they don't give a damn. Yeah, and they're trying to distract you with all of this this idiocy that they're just sort of throwing on top of Shakespeare. Um, that said, near the end of the series, they would have had to get around to like the Henry VIII plays, the death of mm-hmm. Queen Elizabeth, and uh, and the the rise of King James. And it's been said. By some scholars, although there's, this isn't really accepted as widely true, mm-hmm. that Shakespeare helped King James, in fact, probably did the bulk of the work when King James penned the King James Bible. Oh, yeah. I've read that. I've read <laughs> that, too. There, there was a, a that line would have been an interesting season. There was a line of dialogue in, uh, in Gangs of New York. Where uh, I think it's Brendan Gleeson pins down Leonardo DiCaprio says, do you know who... who William Shakespeare was. No, I don't know anything. I'm an ignorant street urchin. He wrote the Bible. <laughs> and there's some truth to that. He might have, he might have been par- at least partially responsible for helping pen the King James Bible. Here's a question. Mm-hmm. And I remember we're, we're in the TV version of this. Yeah. Who do you think they get to play Queen Elizabeth? Because they have to get to her. She was his patron mm-hmm. after a while. Yeah. Uh, you think it would have been a celebrity? I think it would. Have I think been... it would have been a. I think it would have been a famous TV actor, like not someone okay. who's like someone you recognize. Like you get like, um, they seem to be pretty interested in committing to actually getting Brits. Yeah. So because I was my first thought mm. was. Um, uh, uh, my... Michelle Forbes, because she has to be in everything. <laughs> uh, I, I would say Imogen Stubbs. Uh, she was a Shakespearean actor. She's the one who played Viola in that really great film version of Twelfth Night. Oh, yeah. From the late 90s. That's a great choice. Yeah, she would have been a girl. I think she's the right age for mm-hmm. to play the... Uh, like Queen Elizabeth and in that era. She, and she's respectable and mm. good, but she's not so huge that you would be surprised yeah. to see her in the like, show. If she's busy, she's probably putting on a real Shakespeare production exactly. on stage somewhere. I, I buy so, that. Yeah. That's good. That, oh. that, that's who I would cast as Queen Elizabeth. That's a great casting. Okay. I love it. Um, so that is it for mm. this episode of Canceled Too Soon. Unfortunately, we don't have time for letters because I actually got to run. Yeah. <laughs> I have to go to where they're doing a live episode of the movie trivia showdown, and I agreed mm. to be there and do the stuff. So I got to dash. Okay. Uh, so we're not going to have any time to do any letters, but you can still write us letters cancel too soon at gmail.com mm. send us letters we'll read them next week next week we will be back with another recently canceled television show and From this just time, this last season and this time yeah. it's a sitcom <laughs> speaking of the bible it's called living biblically mm. it is based on a book and it is about a guy who is you know he's middle-aged he has kind of lost his way and he decides to live his life strictly according to the bible mm. um and if you want to follow along with us this is currently available on cbs all Act. Access, um, which is the subscription service. It is five ninety nine dollars uh, a month. However, there is a seven-day trial period if you just want to play around mm. uh, and look at it, because it's mostly old CBS shows, a couple of the newer ones like Star Trek Discovery and, and whatever. So um, we will be reviewing that next week, and then we have some interesting stuff lined up for the rest of the month, and then stick around, because in October, it's Scary-tober, and it's nothing <laughs> but horror-themed shows. Mm. 
there's cool stuff on the horizon. Thank you very, very, very much. Am I forgetting anything, Whitney? Uh, no, I think that's it for now. Okay, oh, so... Uh, where, where can we find you on Twitter? Oh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. Together we are at CancelCast. Do not forget we are on Patreon, patreon.com slash canceled too soon canceled with one l uh at our patreon you get bonus episodes you get the right to sign us articles to write whitney just wrote a book mm. review uh that That's is published right. now we will write well, those yeah. articles for you at critically acclaimed.net uh you get google hangouts we just did another one of those and that was really really fun that's where we got the suggestion to remind everyone where they can see the shows <laughs> assuming they're available uh-huh. because they're not necessarily well, these ones from the last season are all pretty available like the mm-hmm. will is on hulu um which i wish i'd noticed before i paid for it on amazon i'm so sorry yeah <laughs> Well, Will is grateful for your dollars. I'm sure they are. Because <laughs> they probably lost a lot of money on I this guarantee lavish production. Um, so anyway, so that's going on. We'll be back next week with Living Biblically. We also have Critically Acclaimed, our other show on Schmozno Network, if you want to hear our movie reviews. And uh, that's a wrap, folks. We'll see you next season. Music